Well, welcome, John. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be able to get you here while you're in the UK, because you live in Los Angeles now most of the time. I brought my passport to prove that I am still British. Never know. Could you give us a, a little potted history of how you actually became a film composer, how it all started? It was mostly in jingles, right? We can, we can at least we can start in jingles and go forward from there. Um, yeah, the jingles was to try and make money, uh, because being a composer is a stupid thing to do. Um, so I did jingles and then realised that it was okay, actually. It was, you know, one day I got asked for, you know, can you do Greek bazooki music? And then the next day, uh, can you do De La Soul? <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is quite fun, you know. You know, I think the first one I ever did was Auto Trader. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I remember getting the cheque for 500 quid. And it, it was the first time I'd made any money, you know, actually writing music. So, it was, you know, you, I, I realised when I look back that you can, you can, find, <laughs> you can find purpose in anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even Auto Trader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but because you, your background is actually uh, totally non-commercial music, you were very much a, a classical music person, weren't you? Well, I was brought up classically, but then you grow hair in strange places and decide you must take up the guitar, like all men, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, my sister listened to Slade, and thinking, that's utter rubbish, I will never enjoy pop music in my life. And then, a couple of weeks later, I heard um, Because the Night by um, Patti Smith, and I thought, holy cow, that's extremely sophisticated. I, this, is, this, this is something that sort of seems to be doing the same stuff as, as Brahms for me, so... And that informed your later work. Yeah, that, ma that made me much sluttier with my <laughs> like of music. You know. Um, how did you How did you get from jingles to uh, doing films? You made a big move. You made a big decision, didn't you? Really, to just move to the west coast of America. Yeah, I I, I got called in to help um, because of my you know technology. I was I had a lot of equipment and I was sort of more interested in tech stuff than a lot of the composers at the jingle company I was at. They were very, very good composers who, who could, you know, <laughs> I remember one, one composer could sort of roll up in the, to a session in the morning, you know, and he'd obviously been out drinking the night before and he'd, he'd written the arrangement on a piece of paper in the cab and they'd give it out and everyone would play it and it'd be perfect. It was, you know, that didn't seem to be the way I could do things. So I used to sort of collect lots of gear and and that led to me being pushed forward for something that Hans was doing. So that's when I met Hans. It was over Christmas. It was one of these things where uh, Fiacre uh, Trench, who was an Irish composer, was brought in to help write for Hans, but he didn't use technology, so I was there to program for him. What, what was the technology at this time? What, what are we talking uh, about? Akai's, you know, Atari 12, uh, 1080 ST, um, you know, Unita sort of interfaces, I can't remember what they're called now. But it was all the usual stuff. It was just a, you know, lots of cables and <laughs> things. Yes. But it, what all this gear enabled you to do as well was, was do something that everyone does now but didn't do very much then, was demos. And with, that was presumably with, with Hans, because he was one of the only people really doing them at that time or able to do them at that time. He was, and because I got to work with Hans at that time, he basically shoved all his sounds at me, all his orchestral sounds. And, and that was the key to everything, really, honestly. I mean, everybody can now get those sounds. You can buy anything now. But at the time, there was no, there was <laughs> no orchestral samples whatsoever. So my interest 
in that grew because I suddenly realized, wait a minute, I can, I can write orchestrally. Um, I've always said I, I, you know, I'm a disabled composer. Um, I read a, there's a great book um, called Musicophilia um, about the brain and, and music, and it described a, a composer in it who, um, who was a classical composer, and she had a, a bad brain accident or an incident, and uh, and um, the author's describing it as a, you know, and ever since this incident, after that, she had to use a computer. <laughs> And I suddenly realised, oh, okay. So some point in the past, I must have had a, some kind of brain incident because I, I find it much easier with computers. So I do use a computer because it's, I don't know, it, it, it fills in the intellectual gap, I think. It's a, it's a memory tool. It's, a, it's an organisational tool. It's an executive function tool. Um, all of these things are, are possible thanks to computers. This all meant that you fitted in quite nicely into Hans Zimmer's group, really. Yes, I was actually one of the rare people in that organisation. You know, I mean, basically, I was. <laughs> he immediately saw that I was. I was using the same idea. I, I was happy to use the same. More than happy. I was really keen on using the same ideas, and so you know, out of that, he said, "Well, you should come to LA." And uh, I didn't for a while. I, I was. Uh, I, I thought I need to. I need to improve my craft a little bit before I go. I didn't want to sort of jump into it and and be swallowed. But the music itself, because obviously, obviously the, you know, you can talk about the gear all we like, but actually, in the end, you've got to know how to use it. You've got to have the musical chops to be able to use yeah. it. Yeah. One of the things I always say to people is that if you were to sit down at a, at a piano with a symphony orchestra and uh, and you and somebody puts a Rhapsody in Blue in front of you, you should really think that you've become very good at the piano before you get to that point. So just because I'm using computers doesn't mean I shouldn't be virtuosic at it. And um, I try and do that. And a lot of my time has always been spent kind of figuring out how to get everything ready and perfect and get, you know, everything easily available. I'm, you know, obsessive about it. I spend weeks getting, you know, the autoload absolutely right, so that everything's in the right place, and I remember it. Well, the naming of it, so that when you name it, the region becomes named correctly. Well, these kind of really things, because as soon as I work, once I start being creative, I require no interruption from the other side of my brain. And so if something goes down, or, or something's slightly off, or I suddenly realize that there's a capital letter in the wrong place on the name, I will, I will obsess about it. And, and I'm trying to write, and in the back of my head it's going, you really should fix that capital letters, right? So, so, so I try and get all that out of the way first, so that, I can, so that it can flow. You know. your, your big break really was face-off, wasn't it, for, with John Woo? Yes. I'm assuming there are always going to be projects when you're working with Hans where people, the director will want Hans Zimmer, but Hans Zimmer's not available, so he gets another person within... Yeah. And that happened with you, didn't it? Absolutely. But how do you deal with that? I mean, let's take Face Off as, a, as an example. They want hands, but you're doing it. So how do you handle that? How do you work that? No, no, what happened was that um, John Woo had heard about me doing jingles and thought, that guy is <laughs> fucking great. I'm going to hire uh, him definitely. for my $80 million <laughs> movie. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah. He wanted hands. Yeah. Hands couldn't do it. Hands said, I know a kid who can. 
But Hans gave a kind of a guarantee. That's, the, that's how that works there, is that they feel confident enough that if you fuck it up, somebody will get it fixed, and it'll, it'll turn out okay. And the trick is not to fuck it up. But it, I'm meaning about the musical style, really. Do you have to kind of go into Hans's style because that's what they originally wanted, or can you be your own man? Being your own man would be stupid, but your ego will creep through. So I think face-off is probably a, you know, a mixture of things. I think there's things in there where... And maybe I was projecting as well. Maybe I thought... I think, I think one of the main themes I wrote was... I remember sort of trying to deconstruct hands. Well, what is, what is hands? What is hands? So I remember thinking, oh, I know, he likes Morricone. I'll rip off some Morricone. So, so if you, it's more with that thing. You just go one step earlier to the source, and you can adapt that person's influences from a, a sort of as a pre-influence. And then it, it came out, I think, sounding fairly like hands, but wasn't, so... <laughs> One of the other composers that was around at the same time in the same organisation was Harry Gregson-Williams. We'll talk about how your partnership, if you like, um, worked on some scores. But from the very beginning of Ants, which I think kind of establishes actually very early on for us uh, the John Powell sound. It's such fun, but you throw everything at that. You've got castanets, Hawaiian guitars, whistling, the whole nine yards are in there. I think what you were describing as the John Powell sound is overwritten. <laughs> Because, yes, that is definitely <laughs> completely overwritten. The funny thing, I just remembered, though, that that scene was temped with Mouse Hunt by Alan Silvestri, which if you've ever, never seen that or heard that score, it's really good. I know I never say you should listen to scores, but that's a really good one. And it's a really good one. And it was hell because that wasn't going to budge. That piece of music was not going to budge. It worked so well. And that was a nightmare. It was one of those nightmares that... Uh, you know, this is the sort of Harry and I are doing this first big thing. And I don't know why I ended up with this scene. He ended up with another scene. And I'm looking at the one where I was really concerned that I was never going to be able to get them off of, of Mouse Hunt because it was just right. It was perfectly right. How did it work with, uh, with you and Harry Gregson-Williams? Because you, you did a few scores together. I mean, I, I know both of you. You're very, very different people. How did it actually work? I didn't know Harry until Ants. And uh, it was just that Jeffrey Katzenberg thought it would be funny to pit us against each other. And Hans was very aware that he could take me into Harry's room and play me something, and I would listen to it and think, damn, 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 that's really good. I better go and write something better. Um, so I think there was a, uh, an element of competition about it. So they've been quite clever about it, really. So it made uh, you yeah, work I better. So. I think so. And, and, but... Harry and I were both hungry, so I think we... It, maybe they didn't think about it. Maybe it, that was just how we were. I'm not sure. But you, you, you split the cues up then. So you'd say, I will do these cues and you will do yeah, these Yeah, I mean, we also would write things and try them on each other. What do you think of this? So in there, you know, there's the, the descending tune and the bass riff I would have come up with, but there's another bit in there, another melody bit. I think we wrote together for another cue. So I just adapted that, shoved that in there. And then there were bits that, um, you know, Harry would write and I would take that material and try and do arrangements of it. And we had a deal, which is that if you kind of try it three times with Jeffrey and he still doesn't like it, then the other one gets a go. So. <laughs> Did you like working that way, though? Um, of course. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great thing because you... I'd always worked collaboratively with other composers, mainly, mainly Gavin Greenaway. Um, so it, it didn't come as any surprise. I thought this was fine. 
completely normal, but apparently it's not. In the same way that songwriters write together, I, I never understood why composers didn't write together more. Mm. Um, but you have to you have to have the right personalities or the right willingness to sort of try this out. If you really are essentially sure that every note you do is right and every note the other guy does is wrong, then you're never going to get anywhere. But Did it work in the same way for Chicken Run? Because that's going to be our first yeah, clip tonight. Um, absolutely. Because I mean, Harry and I went to um, Bristol um, one miserable fucking winter and, um, <laughs> and we were installed there and went round the 23 stages that they were shooting on and looked at a few things and then we, believe it or not, we took a load of equipment, we set up and for about I think three weeks we wrote themes and so that uh, Nick and Peter could come and listen in there. Wow. And, and that's how basically a lot of the main material of that Plus a few things for other films, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like they were using using it for their scenes uh, right at that point, because no. their process is slightly torturous, isn't it? Oh yeah, sort it was two seconds a day or one, a week. A week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, no, it, it was just to write themes. So it was it was early on, and we wrote a load of tunes, and then we back, went back to LA, and then we started to put it in the movie as it as it came together. There's a there's a wonderful moment when the um, uh, billboard that goes across the, the baddie's face is ripped off, and at that moment you have kazoos. I mean, we heard whistling in, um, in Ants. We've got kazoos in this one. These are the kinds of sounds you rather like to play with, aren't they? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Harry and I, uh, it, we've discussed in the past, so which were the cues that Harry did and which were the cues that I did? And, and <laughs> I said to you earlier, generally the, the general opinion was if it sounds stupid, it was by me <laughs> in any of these films. And I don't know why I kind of ended up with doing these things. I remember I, the Kazoos thing, the first time playing it to Jeffrey Katzenberg, he turned around to me and said, what the fuck are you thinking? This, this, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But I, I persisted, and two weeks later, he thought he'd, he'd come up with the idea. It was great. Brilliant. He goes, remember, John, when I, you know, how I told you to do the Kazoos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that film, Ants, Shrek, of course, is another one you did with, with Harry. These are very, very successful films that people really, really loved. That must have been, because we're still fairly early on in your, in your time here as a, as a film composer, that must have been pretty satisfying to be able to, to write music like that and for it to be very successful in a movie. I'd like to say yes, of course, but every film was a struggle. And, you know, I'm never quite sure, never sure if I get to the end of it. And if it, you know, even if it was a hit, then you kind of, you do sigh, have a sigh of relief. But essentially, you know, each of these three films were, were so painful to do. You know, by the end of it, you're shattered. Right. I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> you know, the room full of composers, I find it very hard. I don't know about you, but I find writing music really, really hard. But does that um, not make it even more satisfying, though, when at least all that no, pain if it would have been really easy and successful, that would have been much better. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. You've well, gone through all of that pain, but actually millions and millions of people have loved yeah, it. Yeah, but I also look at it, and I'm never happy with it. I'm always like, dear. I mean, looking at it now, I look, oh, I should have totally changed the orchestration on that, because then I could have heard it. And, you know, and you start looking at it and going, OK, well, should I have done it differently? And could it have been better? There's certain things you look at and you go, okay, well, I seem to get that, that worked okay. But my, my definition of worked is 
it, did it work? You know, it took me a long time, probably years and years later, when I decided that actually the film working was success. Whereas I was much more interested in, did the music work? Um, and of course, it never really did for me. Until, and, you know, it still doesn't. Well, Chicken Run takes us very naturally onto Jason Bourne. Um, you, you, with the original uh, Jason Bourne movie, the, the Bourne Identity, you were not the first composer for that, were you? Carter Burwell had written a score uh, for it. How was that coming in then as a replacement composer? It was a weird call I got. Doug didn't even know I'd been working with Hans. And I'd, and I'd sort of burnt some bridges. I'd, I'd exited um, Media Ventures at the time rather uh, um, badly. As Jeffrey Katzenberg later said, I'd been um, you know, put on the bench. <laughs> um, I was on the bench for a while. I, you know, Shrek was not... You know, Shrek was... You have to understand, Shrek was the, the company would have gone down if Shrek didn't work. So the pressure on, on all, everybody, obviously especially Jeffrey, was massive. And they were not um, going to let anything go. So it was such a fight that it didn't come out of that very well. Harry came out of it <laughs> much better. Um, so I kind of sort of went off. And, uh, and then that came along. And, and all I knew was that Doug had been put in a room in New York with Carter. And they... Apparently, <laughs> the quote I had was, uh, yeah, we, we put the composer and the director in a room together and they didn't talk. That's, that's, that was, <laughs> yeah, I suppose that means that what ended up, in the, you know, that they, they, they had in the score wasn't what they either meant, maybe. Um, so I could learn from that and I could learn that they, not only did they not have the budget for a big orchestra, but they had tried big orchestra and it wasn't going to work. Um, and slowly I got out of Doug that he just wanted something different. He was trying to make an indie film. It just happened to be a... It was like, what would James Bond sound like if you didn't have any money kind of thing. Um, so I, I did everything opposite. It was just an opposite score. That's all. It's really kind of simple. It's, like well, it's quite low-key for an action score, isn't it? I was very... Just strings and, yeah. and then everything else sampled. I was very much interested in what, you know... Uh, people were doing the seventies in films, you know, or, uh, you know, a, James, a, jo a John Barry score for, a, you know, the Ibcris file and things like that. They, they didn't have much music for a start. Lots of, lots of space. So, we tried to get out. You know, there's only about fifty-five minutes of scoring Born or fifty-eight, something like that. As each Born went on, we got, <laughs> it became wall to wall. But, you know, the original idea was let's not. To tell you the truth, let's not do what you'd do in a Jerry Bruckheimer film. So it was, it was opposites. It was really, what do they normally do? Let's not do that. All the lessons I'd learned at Media Ventures with hands, you know, I sort of did the opposite. So big sounds, no, small sounds. Everything mm. made everything dry, smaller, tighter. We're going to move on to a very different Paul Greengrass project, which is United 93, a film, of course, about September the 11th from a different angle, as it were. And again, very Paul Greengrass project in that he's often using, as he did in uh, Bloody Sunday as well and various other films, real people instead of actors who are actually playing themselves in, in the film in the way he works. But he, again, with this film, it seems to me that it, it was a important film, in inverted commas, in that he, had a lot of, he felt a lot of responsibility about this film, particularly to the victims' families. And in fact, on the DVD, there's a 
documentary where about the, the actors going to meet the families of the people that they're playing in the film, which is actually very powerful. It seems clear to me that, that Paul Greengrass had, a, had this enormous responsibility. Did you all feel that responsibility in this particular film portraying this particular event? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you cannot do is, um, I don't know, make, you know, make a, a large emotional gestures on something that is universally already a huge emotional gesture for everybody. Mm. Um, so this was a, again, a, if I'd done it ten years earlier, I probably would have really messed it up. I think uh, being a bit, a bit more mature, I probably just took my foot off the gas, and that's what it needed, I guess. Well, I read somewhere that Paul Greenwell sort of described it as he wanted you to sort of hold the hand of the audience, which is yeah. quite a, a neat way of putting it. Yeah, we, we had discussions about this because there was originally 15 minutes of music in it. I was working on X-Men 3 at the time, so I, I, that was <laughs> fine, 15 minutes. I can, I can manage that at the same time. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it became more worrying, worrisome. Um, and I kept saying, are you sure you want music? Because, you know, the reality of having music in a film is it... Um, the more music you have in a film, the more you damage any kind of reality you have. Um, you may have, you may be able to, uh, you know, enhance the emotional reality, but or the subtextual reality. But the reality itself, when you're seeing, is why are you hearing music? Because I don't, you know. So we argued a bit about how much music to put in, and he kept saying, "No, I think we should have a bit more, bit more." And he, and his theory was, "Okay, well, I need." <laughs> I think he realised it's a very powerful film. Um, I only really watched the film once with sound, and that was the first time. And I never turned the sound up again. It was too too distressing when the sound up. So um, from that point onwards, it was really just about Paul's requirement to actually break the reality. And a bit of music just allowed people allowed you to sort of help the audience stay a little calmer. I think that was his theory. The trouble we're doing these with, uh, with composers is that the the sheer difference between all the films that you do is extraordinary. So we leap from, you know, Chicken Run to Bourne to this, and now we're going to go to Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Brangelina. And uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, of course. Um, this is directed by Doug Lyman again. This is a scene in which the two protagonists, for those of you who haven't seen it, this is a film about two spies who are married to each other but don't realise that either of them is a spy. That's right, isn't it? And their relationship is sort of breaking apart throughout. Now, I, I read somewhere that you'd said that the only reason you chose Latin American music in this film was because part of our brain tells us immediately that that's sexy. Is that right? Um, yeah. If I was Icelandic, maybe I'd argue with that. But, I mean, I think... <laughs> I think so there's, there's a shortcut. Yeah, there's shortcuts all over. I mean, that's what film music is. I mean, you know, we're 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 using these um, societies, and depending on which society you come from, um, just a, a kind of a you know a group knowledge, knowledge of, you know or bias, and so we assume that Latin American music is sexy, and let's face it, it generally is. I mean, it's a lot sexier than a I don't know a you know. Morris dancing music, isn't it? True. I, mean, you know, I tried that in this scene. <laughs> yeah. But the truth is that in this scene, they did they they spent a lot of time with a totally different piece of music that was that was being used, a record, uh, a needle drop, and it was all choreographed to that, and the whole thing was shot to that, and eventually, and so this scene was not on my list of things to do, 
which was great because I had plenty of other things to do. Um, except for I was going to come in at the end, just at the end, where we needed to, when the action sort of started. Um, but they, they had all this music, you know, this, this piece and everything was done to it. And Doug called me up and, um, and said, um, the, the, you know, the, and it was a tango. It was a tango um, already. So I didn't actually think of the tango idea, obviously. The, the rest of it, you know, was more uh, Latin because that, that shorthand was useful. But the tango here had been, I think it had, um, I can't even remember what it was, who it was, but it was a, an authentic tango. They did it, and, and Doug called me up and said, is there anything you can do with that scene? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, could you make them look like they can dance? <laughs> and so I scored it, I post-scored it. Yeah. Um, and the only thing I'd said is, I said, I'll do it, but you, this is the edit. You cannot change the edit. Because if you fuck around with this edit, everything I will do will go out of. I said, I need, one st I need the scene to be static, and then I can make it happen. So I, I, I basically scored it to their movements to try and make it look like they were dancing. But also what you do is you are building up the scene because the tension is getting more and more during the scene and you're piling it, because it's basically the same musical idea repeated over oh, and over, isn't it? Yeah. But you pile on things on yeah. top of it, don't yeah. you, to make In it fact, bigger and bigger. They did change the scene and that's why the front really is a bit repetitive because they added a whole new bit back. And it, right at the last minute, and so the only thing I could think of was to say to the players, okay, can you just do those first four bars another five times? <laughs> and so it's not very interesting, the front of it. And I was, because I was watching it the other day and I was thinking, God, that's, why, what was I, you know, boring? And then I, oh, yes, yeah, that was last minute thing. <laughs> and yeah, the, the idea is build it, you know, attempt to build it in a way that obviously the, the source music, which was supposed to be a source, it was supposed to be dancing to a band there. I think that was the thing that Doug was probably meant by, can you make them dance? I think he, what he meant was not just that they didn't seem to be moving right, it's just that the scene wasn't escalating. So of course I, I really could do that. The last film we're gonna see a clip of is um, How to Train Your Dragon. Now this brings us properly onto animation. Apart from uh, last year or year before, whenever it was, you did Pan and the, the latest Jason Bourne film, before that, you hadn't done a live-action film for, what, six years or so? 2010, I think it was, night and day. Yeah. You've done all these animations. It's by far the most dominant sort of genre in your makeup, isn't it? Robots, Ice Age, Meltdown, Happy Feet, Horton, Here's a Who, Kung Fu, Panda, Bolt, Rio. I mean, it's a long list of yeah. animations. Why do you like animations so much? Two reasons, one of which is... Um it's very hard to find live-action movies that um, aren't people ki kicking the shit out of each other all the time. Um, and nobody seems to hire me that much for sort of <laughs> romantic, <laughs> romantic films. Romantic comedies are kind of, you know, uh, I don't really enjoy that either, but, ro you know, rom really romantic films I would do. But I don't know, there again, I have a tendency to try and write pastoral music. And the problem with pastoral is that it's not much drama in it <laughs> so those kind of films don't exist if only I sort of could go back and sort of you know work on a, a film where nobody cared about you know it having any drama <laughs> I might be able to write that kind of stuff so if you take that stuff take what's left out of the equation which tends to be sort of you know films with a lot of action or comedies just found them 
too irritating to do as well. I mean, this is the thing is that um, I found that animation was a much better source of requirement. Uh, there was a lot, a lot, a lot more um, melody required. I mean, literally on every film, act, live action film, you you know, I was getting Paul Greengrass on on Green Zone famously asked me if I needed all three three notes for the tune, you know, yeah. and uh, <laughs> could I not cut it down to two at least? And that's a very common thing, is and it it's part of the style of you know music for cinema in the last twenty years. So I didn't like the music I was writing either. I don't really like a lot of the music that's required of a live action film and it is my job to supply the film with what it needs and if it needs really boring music you have to write really boring music because that's that's what it needs and that's that's fair as i said earlier you know you, it, the success of the film is good for me but could i find successful movies to do the where i got to sort of open up the the valves a little bit so and lo and behold I, uh, you know animation seems to let me do that <laughs> I always remember Randy Newman saying about the Toy Story movies that if they gave Oscars for the number of notes written, he would win every time. Yeah. They do allow you uh, to work uh, to put an awful lot of music in these things. They allow your music to flow to overwrite. Yes. To overwrite, maybe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, but that uh, that kind of sort of musical freedom, if you like, must be very satisfying. There. It is, and it, and and it, there's a lot more joy in them often. But animators tend to be control freaks. Um, but that suits me. I'm a control freak, so you know we, we get on well. I love the art of it as well. Right. I can sit there and and burst into tears just watching somebody's eyebrow animation because <laughs> I, I find it very very beautiful. Well, and what about the process? Where do you come in? Because obviously these films famously take years and years to to actually make. Do you yeah. always come in right at the very end no. as per? Or? Oh, I see. Well, it depends on you know. Happy Feet was three year, three and a half years because. Of we needed all the musical sequences to animate to, yes. or to, uh, you know, mocap to. Um, but then other ones, you can come right in at the end. I mean, it's just there's really no difference in live action and animation. It's just um, I think that you know, it's the audience is different. The tone you have to watch for. Um, other than that, is it's really the same. But are you ever scoring to unfinished animation? Oh yeah, all the time. How is that for you? Because of, often, surely, uh, emotionally. With music, you're often reacting in live-action movies to, to an actor's performance or an actor's expression and all that kind of stuff. If you're not seeing that already in the animation, how do you deal with it? Well, you, you're seeing it, but it's just a little rough, that's all. Or, you know, um, you wish you could get to the final... You, they could give you the final shot. I mean, often I go to the premieres and go, oh, well, that's what that was, you know. Um, I mean, Kung Fu Panda, I remember one scene, I couldn't see what was going on. So I kind of just did, uh, you know, I think I, <laughs> just as a, I just did some accordion, you know, like that. It was a big action scene. And Jeffrey said to me, what the fuck is that? I said, well, if you give me a picture where I can see what I'm doing, I'll, I'll <laughs> write some music. <laughs> but until then, you get an accordion. So, you know. <laughs> I, I mentioned the Oscar nomination. I mean, you did talk earlier about how it's often kind of painful to get these scores written and it's a long process and it, and it can be very, very hard work and that often you just therefore want to leave it. But actually, it must have been fun to have an Oscar nomination, and Hans was nominated that year too, so you, two of you sitting there, yeah. it must have been fun. Yeah, it, it's, it's when, when, uh, when it was announced who won, Hans turned to me and went, 
like this. <laughs> <laughs> and so, who won that year? Um, well, it was, uh, you know, uh, was social, social network, network, which is which is a really great score. It was a really great score. But so was Inception. Yeah. I mean, f uh, you know, that was an incredible score. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, who knows? I mean, we split the vote. What can you say? You know, so <laughs> uh, you're going to co you're continuing doing more animations now, aren't you? Just can you tell yeah, us a little bit about yeah. what you're doing right now? I'm doing Ferdinand. Ferdinand, which is Ferdinand the Bull. It's a little story about a bull that's the biggest, baddest bull, and won't. Uh, but he won't fight. And uh, so it's a. It's a story just about, you know, the only trouble with animation these days is they're all about being yourself. So I've now got, I've got a little thing up my wall which says, fuck, be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Just to remind me that that's not actually what I want, what I should be focused in on the, on the film. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to, f right, I'm right in the middle of, uh, I've written a load of tunes, the tunes are liked. Trying to work out what the tunes are for and what they should do in the movie is, is really tricky mm. because I keep, <laughs> you know, I keep trying them in different places and then you, you it's about trying to work out what the actual storytelling is. Is the story about pacifism? Is it about be yourself? Or is it about sort of love conquers all and that kind of thing? And there are all these kind of common traits that all of these stories have. I just want to try and make sure that I fit the right tune to the right bit of it. Mm -hmm. So I've got a tune that's called the flower tune, you know, which is about flowers. But do flowers really mean f flowers or do they mean death in this film? You know, and then I've got a tune which is, you know, you could call I, it's either the magic bull tune or the home tune or the Ferdinand tune. Um, but, you know, I discovered I cannot use it in the minor. It will only work in the major. Before um, we open it up a little bit, could you tell us a little bit about your own studio? Because a lot of people here, I know, have their own home studios. You have a home studio that is slightly different to a lot of home studios I've been in. It almost looks purpose-built and isn't quite, but could you explain it? Uh, just describe it a little bit, because it's an amazing place. It, uh, well, it, it, was, it was built sort of as a studio and an art, uh, an art studio, and uh, by my neighbor, who, had, who was kind of a, an artist, photographer, and a musician. So he made a big room and then put a proper control room in, and. You know, it was all the infrastructure was already there. I just improved the sound. I, I put in, um, you know, a lot of uh, sound work on it, and then changed a lot of the gear out. But there's room enough for how many musicians down there? Uh, you, in the main room, you could probably get about thirty musicians. Yeah. Um, but we now mainly uh, mix in that. Did you room. hear the envy just then? Yeah, I, sorry, I, I heard. Like, that. But you have to remember that I also used to write in a garage where it was not a big enough garage to get out of a golf. <laughs> you, had to, you had to get out of the, the roof. So yeah. and I used to work in that. So, you know, uh, I, a certain time you, you get, you, you know, you get... And I do actually, I now no longer work in the big room. I, I work in the control room because I can lock the door. I have a, <laughs> like a toilet lock. It says engaged on the outside. <laughs> so, so people not to even try the door. Because, you know, when I was saying earlier that I can't, I'm easily distracted, even them trying the door or looking in to see if I was working. That's enough, I'm done for the day, <laughs> if I hear that. So I put this toilet lock on it, it says engaged, and they just ignore me, it's good. But the, the other key thing about it is that you use it for mixing, don't you? Because you, you feel there aren't 
actually that many good mixing rooms yeah, in Los Angeles. We've now made the big room, which used to be very ambient. I've now sucked all the sound, all the life out of that and made it a very dry room, but it's big, it's got a big volume. And that's what that's the difference is that when you're mixing in a you know you're in a cinema you've got a lot of physical volume, and it does change how you mix the music because you know there's a roll off of top, you know before you even get to the screen X curves all those kind of things a lot of changes will happen just air the distance of air, so we've set that big room up now as a mix room and I put in a you know S6 and I've sort of customized it in a way that makes sense for mixing. Film music, we have. We basically are now running it at 192. I have four rigs running at 192. I mean, I used to have a big screen, like, you know, twice as big as that, and projection and stuff like that. <laughs> and that's bullshit. So I, I'm now I've got a small TV, you know, so it's like, it doesn't matter. But the screen you use itself for putting up Pro Tools and stuff, that's enormous. It's the well, biggest the logic I've screen. Yeah, the logic screen I use is, uh, is a 65 inch. Eight, um, <laughs> um, it's 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 a TV. It's it, can I tell it's you? It's enormous. just a, it's a it's a four K TV. Yeah. That work with a Mac. If you plug in a you know a, a new Mac into it, you can run a. It causes all sorts of other problems that we've been trying to fix. But um, <laughs> yeah, because I, a I can't see and b I hate changing screens and I like it. I like be I like seeing everything all at the same time. Mm. So it's a, it's just a function of sort of ADD and bad eyesight. I'm sure we've got some questions from people in the audience. Uh, have we got a microphone, by the way? Yes, we have. First one up was, was down here. Hello, John. Hi. My name's Lewis and I have autism. Um, the question I want to ask you is, John, is have you ever considered doing a film soundtrack with a rock star, maybe like Josh Home from Queens of the Stone Age? I met with him on a film. Cool. And he's very, very, very nice and, and brilliant, quite brilliant. And the film was... Um, absolutely one of the worst films ever made and both of us made the absolutely correct decision not to do it but it was a shame because I would love to have worked with him yeah no there's lots of people I'd love to work with um, you have you have worked with quite a few uh, yeah, people in that area yeah I mean I just had we just had Nick Jonas doing a song for Ferdinand and that, he was a real pro he's great um, but you know, there's lots of really interesting people I'd love to work with, like Danger Mouse. Can you imagine doing it? I think he, I think he's just done uh, Baby Driver. He worked on Baby Driver, so. Oh, but I, it would I was be thinking of another Danger Mouse entirely. No, not that one. No. <laughs> um, you know, um, can you imagine doing a sort of a Diplo? I'd love to do a, a score with Diplo. I mean, that would be amazing. Because I mean, I think the deal is to try and bring something to the table that they don't do and then bring something to the table that you don't do so if it's a real artist who doesn't want to try and think about making it fit film and I can do that it's easy I'll do that but let's just sort of collaborate in a way that gives something you know that I would never think of as a, as a film composer so another question over, over thanks here thanks yeah. a lot John sure thanks for the question John thank you for a fascinating talk I'm Noah so I shall ask a question that isn't explicitly related to film music, but I was at your premiere of um, Requiem Addendum on Friday, um, and I can't help but wonder whether writing concert music, Eric Whitaker mentioned that you were kind of segueing into concert music. I just wonder whether concert music is something that you've all, uh, always written alongside your film music, or why it's kind of beginning to happen now. Um, it's beginning to happen now because I, 
I decided I needed a bit more time from film. So I went from, you know, three, four films a year to one. And that frees up an awful lot of time. Um, and I'd been meaning to do it. I used to write, obviously, a lot more. Um, I was, you know, I am, was a composer uh, who just happened to sort of get into film music. So now I'm going to get back into just writing music. And um, it's been interesting. Uh, I've, I've had to then rely on myself <laughs> a bit more. I don't have the film. I can't hide behind the film. Um, or a deadline as well. That's the other one. Well, it? the deadlines you can set yourself. I mean, you basically just say, okay, at this point in the future, we will either record it or it needs to be ready. And the classical world likes everything very early. Um, so that... That will work itself out. Uh, but I did discover the whole process of doing this, and it, it will all come out as an album at the end of the year. Um, it's just all choral music. Um, it, I, dis I discovered that I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to kind of play that game. You know, the, the way that... I, I know the game in Hollywood very well. I know exactly how you get work, how you keep work, how you make relationships, how, you know, how the whole thing works. The classical world is oof, very different, and I'm not sure I'll ever be accepted in that world or or not. And and I'm not even sure I should be making those kind of overtures and trying to play that game, um, because I'm in an advan very advantageous situation where I can actually, with all of these works, I, I I write them, I you know we orchestrate, we produce the parts, and then I hire an orchestra and we record it, and I'm done. I mean, it's like I don't need anybody else to either believe in it or care about it or <laughs> provide any money for it. I, I, I can do it myself. So I suddenly realized, well, I'm just going to do that. Um, so hopefully every year I'll probably bring out an album of music. And I can't guarantee one year won't be, I don't know, bizarre club music. And the next year, I mean, I, mean, I, have, I do have an album in, in me of, of Bulgarian women's choir music, which I will do at some point. Various things will pop out, and I'll try and record them, and each year we'll put out an album of stuff, and if people like it, great. If they don't, it'll be there as part of sort of what I leave around. <laughs> Does it inform what you do in your film work then, as well? Is, it, is that freedom that you have to just write any music you want to then feed in any, in any way, in a beneficial way, to I'm writing for film? I'm not sure. I mean, in a way, uh, it's funny, I was right in the middle of writing this other piece of Prussian Requiem, which is the longer piece. I was in the middle of that when Pan came along. And Pan, they only had five weeks. And it, <laughs> I sort of did Pan because it was going to be a, it was a relief from having to write the, the Requiem because it was difficult. I mean, films are difficult, but fuck, it's really hard to write music for music's sake. So I, it was easy. I just fell into it and I knocked it out five weeks enjoyed it, got back, and then I had to get back to down to the real work. So I'm not sure. I mean, Ferdinand and a few other films coming up will be the first stuff that you really hear if it's informed. I don't know. I probably feel that I sh should write better because I'm, try <laughs> I'm trying to write better for the concert world, for these albums. Um, so I'll, I'll probably try as well for films. I'm not sure. We'll see. Another question? Hi there. Um, given the fact that you're very used to working in the box with samples and all of that kind of stuff, these days, as you're nice and successful, how far do you go with, your, with the process of composition? Do you take it right up to mock-up stage and then orchestration? Or do you have a team? 
I have a giant, giant team. Um, and they're all <laughs> probably better at everything than me. But what I found is that you cannot provide a sort of a, even a rough mock-up to anybody nowadays. It has to sound perfect. So, uh, you know, I was sitting there the other day thinking it would be great to, I can sketch this out in, you know, 20 minutes, and then I'm going to spend the next two days programming it to sound right. Um, is this something that I should be spending my time doing? Um, so I do have a, I have people, and I can give them an exactly finished thing. I mean, for instance, if you looked at the chicken run thing, the very end of the chicken run is exactly the same cue as the opening in chicken run. And yes, you could say that's an attempt at arch form, or you could say I had no time and that seemed to fit, so I just plonked it in there. So there's a pragmatic part of film scoring where you really need to use help. I mean, in the old days, yes, you'd produce a, a short score and a team of orchestrators would orchestrate it, but this brings us to the question of what is orchestration. I think a lot of people get they mistake arranging for orchestrating. Um, and orchestration can be, you know, Rimsky-Korsakov orchestrating Borodin, or it could be, you know, transcribing MIDI, where everything is pretty much there. And I'd I'd say I sort of tend to use the the you know the latter as a better example of what we do generally in film. You could say that some of my assistants are orchestrators, or you could say that they're arrangers, and that, that some of our orchestrators, we do give them a hard time in the sense that sometimes I, you know, I just, rather than write a lot of woodwinds in, I just plonk a load of sort of things on, or I just say, can you just double some shit? And so you fill it out, and, and on the session you thin it out, or you say, you know, well, we'll just keep that stuff. I mean, you, you get lots of options written to the score for a bit of experimentation on, on the session. So, I mean, it's a variety of techniques that, that go on. Some of it is exactly, doesn't move an inch from what I did. And other times it can be very fluid and flexible. Presumably you're in a position now to be able to give opportunities to your younger assistants that Hans did to you all those years ago. Yeah, although I've discovered over the years it's re that he, he can do something. He's got the force thing, you know, these are not the composers you're looking for, you know, sort of thing. And so, uh, <laughs> or, you know, I am doing this score, it's not somebody else. I mean, I got that opportunity because he, he sort of gave everybody the confidence that whatever I did you know, however bad or well I did it, it would end up okay at the end. And and that's that takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort. And he is really unique in that. And I now I'm on the other side of it. I understand why. Because I've tried. I've tried to do films where I've said, well, I'll write the themes and, you know, and the guys that I work with can do this. And somehow I don't seem to, you know, give them the same confidence that he can. They always go, no, thank you, no. <laughs> so I've not I've not managed it very well for, for my own assistance. Um, uh, I think Hans is really the only person, almost, that I know that has really sort of managed to promote that way. Lots of other people have promoted themselves from under other composers by the experiences, but... Well, let's squeeze in one more quick question. I wondered if you... Well, you've been in L.A. for quite a while now, but I wondered if you have a... Um, give us perspective on the principal differences between working as a composer in L.A. versus London these days. 
Um, well, much to Donald Trump's chagrin, I am an, an economic migrant. I left L London because I couldn't get work outside of Jingles, and I couldn't seem to get. I mean, it, was very, it seemed very hard to get into even you know to TV, and there wasn't many films being made. This was the irony of working on Chicken Run. I remember thinking, how did I end up on Chicken Run? Isn't it? If I'd stayed in London, I would have never been able to work on this. Um, I had to leave and go to LA to, to, to work on an English film. But it's a town that a lot, lot of films are made, so there are more, more opportunities. However, there's 10 times of this room for every movie, you know, I'm afraid to tell you all. And the trick is gonna be for anyone, if you go there, you either end up working, you know, as an assistant, and often it, the only place to start is a, is a tech, by the way. When, when, they, when, when I'm talking about assistants, I'm talking about people assisting me who have been doing it for 15 years, by the way. Not walking in. No, none of them do that. It, it takes years and years and years before you ever get a cue to finish or mess around with. The rest of the time you are like dealing with samples and you're editing samples or you're trying to sort of find a way of making contact work better or something. It's all technical. Most assistant jobs for composers is, is just nothing but technical. Um, so if you're not technical, you've got to ask yourself, is that the right kind of way of doing it? It's going to be very hard to, to, to jump on. I mean, the other way to do it is to, it's hard, but just be better and more interesting than everybody else. Because, let's face it, it all sounds the same. I mean, at a certain point, it's very hard to listen to film music at the moment and find anything interesting. Um, so that's the trick, I think, is to stand up above everybody else by, you know, having a, a sound that, or a technique or something about what you're trying to do that just is different. Because it's, I mean, when I look out at everybody here, everybody's clearly very capable. There's some <laughs> extremely, extremely um, you know, experienced people here. Um, how did any of us get the chance to start? It's a catch-22. You start, you do, you fail, you succeed, you keep going in this mad circle. And then, in my case, um, I suppose 30 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a career. We've run out of time. Thank you very much for all your questions, and thank you all again for coming tonight. Will you join me in saying a huge thank you very much to John Powell.